The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thanks, and hi, everybody. As Scott just mentioned, these stocks this afternoon are back in rebound mode and rallying for the first time in three days now. It's a reversal higher in oil and some better-than-expected earnings, all boosting sentiment. Check out the Dow. We're up 418 points, 1.2%. The Nasdaq's up almost 200 points, or 2.4%. The S&P up 2%. That's a 55-point gain. Uh, oil is the story of the session, the story of the week, really. Uh, and it's back up by 20%, about 2 bucks, just below $14 a barrel for the crude contract. In June, July under 21, August is hanging out around 24 bucks a barrel. Now, remember, the price of oil, the front contract, plunged 43% yesterday. It's come roaring back up 40% at the highs today, but we're still way down from the $60 a barrel level that we saw as recently as January. So let's get to all of it, the oil effect, uh, the earnings in particular, and some of the positive surprises that we've had there with Bob Bassani this afternoon. Hi, Bob. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. And uh, this on the surface looks like a powerful rally. It's about three to one advancing the declining stocks. But the strength is very selective, actually. So let's just take a look here. We're, you know, not far from the highs for the day, just off them a little bit here. But I see big moves in technology stocks. Good, good moves again in energy for the uh, second day in a row, holding up pretty well. But a lot of underperformance here. I see Healthcare, uh, I see industrials underperforming. I see consumer staples underperforming. I see particularly banks underperforming. Some of them are actually negative. Some of the regional banks are actually negative on the day. So where is all the strength coming from? This is a mega cap rally, mostly in technology and consumer discretionary. So look at this thing. Facebook's up 7% here. Alphabet's up 4%. Microsoft is strong. Apple is up 2.5%, Amazon's up almost 2%. This is huge. And then these are the five biggest ones. Look at the next five. Nine of the 10 biggest companies are up very big today. Only Procter & Gamble is lagging here. Berkshire, Johnson & Johnson, which got an upgrade today at Bank of America. Uh, Walmart's strong. United Health is strong. Guys, when you get nine of the top 10 stocks up 2, 3, 4, even 7%, the S&P is going to move up rather aggressively. Three to one is nice, but it's not exactly an enormous rally. Mega caps is the story today. Back to you. You know, Bob, does the fact that is there a reason why the mega caps would be rallying today? And, you know, does, do we typically see that pattern uh, playing out for any particular reason? Or do you think there's something here at play with earnings uh, and the rest of it? No, the market is trying to bet on the ones that they think are going to survive and, and do the best uh, in Recently, the biggest winners in the last 10 years in the mega cap space have all slowly become either technology stocks or let's not call them really consumer discretionary stocks. They're technology based companies that happen to be in the consumer discretionary pace, space, but they've all essentially run on technology. So they're betting on on the companies they think are going to survive. In the case of Walmart, that's obvious. Procter and Gamble and Johnson and Johnson, they're all benefiting. They're all beneficiaries of the coronavirus disaster to one extent or the other. So it makes a little bit of sense. It's kind of dangerous to play in the small cap space. And 
essentially, we're dealing with the S&P 100 right now. That's the stuff that's moved the most since the whole coronavirus stuff has moved in. If you look, go down from there to the 500, to the mid cap and the small cap, each rung down you go, there is a greater amount of underperformance in the market. Yeah, that's a great. It's like the S and P ten right now, Bob. <laughs> uh, with this, that, yeah. You, narrow... there, you, if we had an S and P ten, that would be the one to look at. Right, for sure. Uh, good point, and Bob, we appreciate it. Bob Bassani with the market okay. recap there. Washington also providing a lift to stocks today. The Senate passing another massive four hundred eighty-four billion dollar relief package. While Fannie and Freddie say they will buy unpaid mortgage loans. Is it all enough, or is still more needed to keep these markets afloat? Joining me now are Neil Hennessy, the chief investment officer of Hennessy Funds, and Michael. Kushma, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Neil, I'll just start with you. Uh, you, you know, would you like to see more on the way here? Not necessarily. Uh, you know, I think you have to take a step back, Care Kelly, and, and look at a total situation and understand what's happening to the economy and companies. It's, it's material, to say the least, but it's not terminal. I mean, most of the companies are in very good steadfast. The S&P 500 companies have over $5 trillion in cash. There's plenty of good companies out there, but the volatility has given the investor the feeling that every company on the New York Stock Exchange or any exchange is going broke, and that's so far from the truth. But to hand out money, I think we've got to be a little careful on this. The banks are making a tremendous amount of money on the PPP loans, just somewhere, as I was reading, somewhere between 1% and 5% of whatever the loan is the government's paying them. So the banks are just getting stronger during this and taking no risk. So I think we just got to take a breather and say, okay, we just can't be, keep passing out money. Well, I know, Michael, you disagree. Uh, you say more government support is coming, call it phase three and a half, as much as it takes uh, and so forth. How, how much more uh, do you expect or do you think needs to be on the way? Well, I, I think what, what needs to be done is what needs to be done. And our view on how policymaking is going to be done is we're going to wait and see how things respond when the markets and economies reopen, economies for goods and services. Because right now, there's no point in providing stimulus to encourage spending when people can't travel, can't spend. So right now, it's about supporting income, supporting the people's ability to buy food, pay rent, and do all those things while we wait for the health situation to improve, and that's when, when, when people start going back to work. The question is, how much will consumer confidence have dented? Will people resume their previous habits of spending money, or will consumers hold back? And consumer spending is upwards of 70% of the economy. Right. So if consumers retrench significantly post-reopening of the economy or as it reopens, we will see weakness. And I think phase four down the road is going to be outright stimulus to actually stimulate spending in the economy. If consumers won't spend, the government will spend. Yeah, no, I know. It does seem we're headed that way. Neil, let me ask you, you know, we spoke with Bob a moment ago about how the what we're jokingly calling the S&P 10 is really outperforming today, the, the, the biggest stocks in the market. The names that you like are more like LPL Financial, NCR, ITRON. Why those companies? Um, would you lean against the, the big cap trend or, or kind of ignore it? Well, I try and look at uh, value and, and quality, and I look at these three companies. They're in different sectors, but they're all going to be needed. People are going to need financial advice. That's as simple, especially in volatile times with LPL. Uh, if you look at NCR, 
in the scanners in stores or the scanners or, or self-menus at airports. You're going to need more of those because people want more distancing. You look at ITRON, which essentially is smart meters for gas hmm. and, and uh, um, electricity and water. So these are, these are good, solid companies with low price-to-sales ratios, very good profits, and a lot of room to raise dividends or initiate dividends. So when I try and look at the market, Kelly, and especially the equity market, I said, what do you really want to do? Would you rather own the Dow Jones 30 companies for the next 30 years, yielding almost 3%, mm-hmm. or a 30-year U.S. government bond yielding 1.25%? Well, that's perfect. It doesn't take a genius to figure this out. All right. I, so, Michael, we'll, we'll put that to you as the global fixed income guy. How do you make the pitch for fixed income? Uh, the pitch for fixed income is that the results of what happened in March has created lots of dislocations in credit markets. So, absolutely, U.S. Treasuries are providing no income. And close surrogates to that, like U.S. agency mortgages, are also providing very low yields and very little income. So that's not going to be um, a place to, to invest to create wealth or generate income over time. But think of 10-year of treasuries as being a policy instrument of the Fed. Those rates will be driven down as far. And I think 50, the 50 basis point level on 10-year treasuries is about as low as we're likely to go, barring some further disastrous news on things. But that, that driving down of those yields is an attempt to drive down and stabilize credit markets. So right now you right. can still get you know, 4 to 5% on investment-grade corporate bonds, which are companies which should do just fine over the next so five five years. No doubt that certain sectors of credit markets are dangerous. Energy is one. Um, it, there's no doubt that there's dislocations going on there that will take significant time to sort out. But in terms of uh, other opportunities, whether in securitized credit, what I mean by that is mortgages not, not generated by the agencies, non-agency yeah. mortgages, you can find a 4 to 6% yield in reasonably high-quality things, investment-grade okay. things, which is not bad in the current situation. Yep. No, I take your point. Uh, you know, either way, uh, there's a little bit more yield maybe that people thought was out there. Uh, we appreciate you both uh, being here today. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. Michael Thank Kushma you. and Neil Hennessy. Let's move to oil now. The price of crude continuing its comeback today, up about 27 percent right now, up 40 percent at the highs. We're just above $14 a barrel. But it's whipping around. There's a lot of volatility. And we're a far cry from the $60 price we saw back in January. This collapse has led the Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates the oil and gas industry, to consider production cuts, though now it's holding off on a vote until it can ensure any action will withstand legal challenges. For more, I'm joined by Wayne Christian. He's the chair of the Texas Railroad Commission. And Wayne, the longer you wait, uh, the less you can help, frankly. Kelly, that's somewhat true. But the other thing is to do something wrong would be even more damaging. And that's what we're avoiding. We're wanting all the information, all the answers that we possibly can get. We had 10 and a half hours of testimony a week ago, as we talked earlier uh, about, that the industry and all the interested parties were able to testify. So it's a lot to go through. And the Railroad Commission has reviewed that. We've tried to inject as many changes to policies we possibly are allowed to to meet the needs of our industry. And we are just uh, negotiating federally with what our role can play in that particular venue. So we're looking at a decision that makes sense and has facts to present, not to make an off-the-cuff decision. This is too important. Yeah. No, and we spoke to the Energy Secretary yesterday, uh, Dan Bruyette, who said we had spoken to your colleague, Ryan Sitton, who said he, he was in favor of pro uh, proration, but wanted other states to also be looking at, at cutting back production. 
the energy secretary said he's not sure if that's legal to cooperate across state lines. So is that what you're referring to? Uh, if that is OK, would you sign on to Commissioner Sitton's plan? Uh, if it were a successful plan, the entire United States came together. I agree with the energy secretary. I would follow the lead of the federal government. Now, we're, we're federalist government here, which means each of the states has its responsibility in individual roles. And when they put an entire nation together, that's several states. Now, we are negotiating. I visited with our friends in North Dakota. Oklahoma has made some moves toward considering a, a capping. But uh, Texas will stand alone and, and decide what's best and if we can indeed uh, benefit working together, but at the lead of our energy department. So if, if your attorney general in Texas, Ken Paxton, says that this is okay, would you vote for uh, prorating oil production? Uh, I haven't made up my mind yet. Uh, it's still an issue that's on the table, quite frankly. Uh, I find there's some arguments that we found in the debate that uh, don't seem to be coming out. Uh, as presented, it was saying there was little, little, little folk against the big international companies in oil production. Mm -hmm. And I've not seen that as being evident when the evidence is reviewed. And I, I'm just finding that there's a lot of questions and we're still trying to put the answers together. But I understand I'm putting them together as fast as possible because we don't need to let the markets continue to be uncertain on what's going on with oil and gas. Texas will rise to the occasion. Uh, 100% of the time, this nation has been under, under attack in every means possible. I've been a financial registered investment advisor for some 40 years, and I'll take it 100% of the time America comes back stronger. So does Texas. You know, you have a task force you're assembling. Uh, I'd like to explain what you are hoping will come out of this. It looks like they're looking at every aspect, uh, as you've said, of the oil industry, operations, permitting, timelines, tax policy, storage capacity, pipeline capacity, market access barriers. Are these kind of looking at other tools that might be used to curb production or you know, help the industry, you know, offer more storage and that sort of thing uh, if, if prorating isn't the answer? Yes. Uh, what I did was appoint a task force of all of the different organizations, the associations, from large to small, from landowners, royalty owners, all the different organizations to come together and to tell us how we could best assist the free market industry as a governmental agency rather than the government big brother tell free market what to do. I mean, the, the industry in Texas and in the United States has built the most successful industry of oil and gas and, and energy in the history of the world. And why doubt now that when we have a crisis, almost a warlike situation, where indeed government should play its role. I, will, I appointed this task force for them to tell us what would be the best part to play. Right. And then we can decide where the government goes big. And I think we've experimented with socialism a little bit. I don't think it's feeling too good in America today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would hardly expect Texas to be the state to lead the way, which is what makes this so interesting. Final question, and Senator Cruz has suggested that he would turn back the flotilla of 40 million barrels of Saudi crude on 20 ships that is headed your way. What Do you have a, a plan about what to do about this? I mean, talk about making a bad situation worse right now. Well, again, I visited with Senator Cruz yesterday with the Senator Cornyn, uh, both of our senators. I visited with the Department of Energy. And again, the, the state of Texas takes care of Texas business. When it comes to negotiation of uh, different things internationally, I think it's inappropriate for us as a state agency to tell the United States of America how to negotiate foreign affairs. I have visited with them about my concern of this flotilla coming to the United States that I think is kind of against the intent agreed upon with President Trump uh, with the OPEC agreement to cut production as of May 1st. So I trust President Trump, the administration, to take care of international affairs. All right. Wayne Christian, it's always good to check in with you. Thank you. Thank you. Wayne Christian is the chair of the Texas Railroad Commission.
coming up, Chipotle earnings are topping estimates as digital sales soar, but store sales still plunged. What's ahead? We'll speak with the company's CEO, Brian Nicholas. The shares are up 12.5% today. Plus, the tide has turned from stock buybacks to stock issuance amid this crisis. We'll look at what that could mean for the next bull market. And as more states begin to lift lockdown orders, we'll also look at what steps companies should take to ensure a successful opening as they start to do so. Stay with us here on The Exchange. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. It's not just when and how that states have to consider in terms of opening their economies. It's also the what. What are people willing to do to make this reopening happen? CNBC's New States of Play poll shows that in areas that are up for grabs in the election this year, one thing is a clear priority, and that is privacy. To get a better idea of what steps people are and aren't willing to take to get back to work, let's bring in Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Hi, Kelly. Concerns about the coronavirus and views on the government's response are largely shaped by political affiliation. But there's some clear takeaways on how voters in some critical swing states are viewing the economy, according to the latest exclusive CNBC and Change Research poll conducted late last week. Respondents say that they don't feel the federal government has been too aggressive in extending social distancing to April 30th and pouring trillions of dollars into the economy. Fifty two percent of voters in these six battleground states say the federal government should be more aggressive. And while concerns are shifting toward the long-term economic impact, still voters are more concerned about their family's health. They're worried that people aren't taking social distancing seriously enough. They're worried that economies are opening too soon, and they're worried that there's still not enough tests available. To that end, more than half of respondents say they would be willing to take a test and share the results of that test with their employer once they go back to work. They are willing to have their travel restricted. 61% were okay with that. And two-thirds of respondents are willing to wear masks and have their temperatures checked. But respondents overwhelmingly balked at providing location data to have their contacts traced. But Kelly, that might be an inevitable part of our future here. The CDC says it's creating an alternative workforce of displaced government employees to begin trying to trace some of these contacts so they can notify people more quickly if they've been close to someone who's become infected. Kelly? Yep. And companies are going to be part of that effort, too. Kayla, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Kayla Tausche. Some states are starting to reopen their economies this week, but it doesn't at all mean things are going back to normal. A lot of companies will have to dramatically change the way they do business. And joining me now for what that could look like is Chloe Dimravsky. She's CEO of the Disaster Recovery Institute, which does help companies reopen after a crisis. So you were literally made for this, Chloe. It's good to have you. Do you have a pandemic playbook? We certainly do, Kelly. You know, shutting down businesses was difficult. Reactivating them is going to be harder. Uh, but of course, what is important here is that there are things that businesses can do in order to prepare for it. And they've had a little bit of a quiet shutdown period in order to start preparing for them. So what does that look like? Um, are we talking about tests? Are we talking about surveillance? Are we talking about having your blood drawn, you know, at your place of work? Are infrared scanners of, you know, for your body heat, fever checks. I even read that Volkswagen 
in Europe as it starts to reopen will be testing its workers' blood oxygen levels. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of these measures. It's going to vary based on what that particular business is able to take on. Large businesses are obviously going to have to are going to be able to put a lot more in place than smaller businesses or franchise locations. But what we're going to see is that overall customers are going to be demanding not just uh, assumptions of safety, but visible steps and measures that that uh, companies are taking on behalf of their employees, on behalf of their customers, um, on behalf of the general public to ensure their safety. And so that could be things like temperature checks at doors. It's obviously going to include things like continuing with the social distancing. Even in sectors where we're not used to seeing it, we're going to have to see personal protective equipment on all employees, probably requirements that customers, like for example, when they walk into stores are also wearing things like masks. We're going to have to see reductions in um, person-to-person contact, even in businesses that really thrive on something like that. Right. So that's going to be really hard to do in, say, like a hair salon. But in restaurants, they can start to put up, you know, plexiglass barriers. They can use disposable cutlery, for example. There are measures that they can take. Yeah. Um, so we'll start to see them sort of experiment with these things as they go. But hopefully uh, those those businesses will have put in place some planning during this downtime that they've had. It's going to be a bull market for plexiglass, that's for sure, yeah. uh, and a bear market for open floor plans, which doesn't sadden me. But for retail, mm-hmm. which is an industry that's going to be really affected by this, and it's going to be really difficult to reimagine that, what does retail look like in the post-COVID world? And by the way, how much are companies going to have to spend at a time that their budgets are squeezed to, to reimagine all of this stuff? Well, Kelly, certainly there are going to be no testers on the floor, I should hope. You know, sometimes the obvious things can't can't escape people. So it's really important that even if they're used to putting out samples, like at a place like Sephora, right? Ulta, yeah. It's like their business, Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to offer that kind of service to people unless they do individually package things, for example. So every business is going to have to think about that sort of thing. Um, with clothing or, or other types of, of, of things that, where they can distance more, it'll, it'll be a little simpler. And what they should all be doing is paying attention to those essential businesses that have had to figure this out in real time, like grocery stores, and figuring out what they've been doing and learning as they go. Because, for example, you can bet that if a grocery store chain was behind others in terms of um, mandating that their, their um, employees wear that personal protective equipment, uh, there have been posts on message boards uh, on social media saying, hey, they're not being responsible. Consumers expect that. And then also the regulators are going to have to be clear about what um, they expect in terms of uh, public health, but also in terms of privacy, as you mentioned uh, very importantly in in the previous segment. Yeah, and we're only focusing on the physical workspace, you know, the work schedules around whether you have uh, child care for your kids or if they're in school or not. You know, it's going to be complex. And and like you said, I think you put it best right at the beginning. As hard as it was to shut down, it will be harder to reopen. Chloe, we'll leave it there, uh, but we appreciate it. Thanks for joining me today. Chloe Demrovsky is the CEO of the Disaster Recovery Institute. Still ahead, the president says he's ready to support the U.S. oil and gas industry, but that will only delay the reckoning, potentially, for an industry that's on the verge of collapse. We'll look at whether that's a good idea. Plus, a look at what may be happening to cause the major disconnect between the apparently large supply of tests and the reality that people can't get them. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. 
At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines this hour. Sue? Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo says his state is in a better place with fewer hospitalizations and the lowest daily death toll since April 1st. But he stresses that does not mean restrictions can be relaxed yet. We get reckless today. There are a lot of contacts today, unprotected contacts today. You'll see that hospitalization rate go up three, four, five days from today. It is that simple. Stanford University has pulled its request for coronavirus funds under the CARES Act. Stanford now says the priority should be to aid schools facing more dire circumstances, even though Stanford is seeing a significant impact on its own finances. We'll have more for you next hour, including some new numbers. As always, you can go to our coronavirus coverage at CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue. Thanks very much, Sue Herrera. Congress setting aside $25 billion for testing in the latest relief bill. This comes as a crucial component of reopening uh, for states across the country. For the very latest, let's bring in Meg Terrell. Uh, Meg, it's good to see you. And what will this funding accomplish? Well, it's great to see you, Kelly. Uh, it, it is hoped that this uh, funding will enable increased capacity in testing in this country. And we have seen capacity ramp up, but now plateau at around 150,000 tests per day in the U.S. We've now tested more than 4 million people. But a research group from Harvard suggests that capacity needs to be at least three times higher before we can safely start to reopen the economy. Now, one major issue with this, of course, is the supplies needed to run these tests, the reagents, the swabs, the personal protective equipment. And one of the major entities um, doing these tests are American medical colleges and teaching hospitals. And the Association of American Medical Colleges wrote a letter to Dr. Debbie Burks from the White House's Coronavirus Task Force last week, essentially trying to lay out what the issue is here, saying, quote, widespread but uneven shortages in one or more of the essential components for testing have resulted in a situation where few labs are able to maximize the testing capacity of any one machine, platform, or test. Now, Dr. David Scorton, the president and CEO of the Association for American Medical Colleges, joins us now to tell us more about this letter, what he's seeing in his members' uh, labs. Um, Dr. Scorton, thanks for being here. You know, tell us about these shortages. Um, how big of a problem are they? How much are they hampering capacity um, to increase for testing in this country? Well, thanks a lot for having me on, uh, Ms. Terrell. And what you just mentioned a moment ago about those numbers, well, there are some people who think that number per day has to be way higher, maybe a million, maybe three million, maybe five million a day. And that's the first thing to talk about is why we need so much testing. We need it not only right now to deal with the crush of the pandemic, but as we begin to reopen as a country, which, of course, we have to do eventually, we need to have a lot more testing in workplaces, as your earlier segment talked about, and in other areas. So we had uh, some very good interaction with the task force and very much appreciate Dr. Burks reaching out to us and to others who oversee laboratories, as many of our institutions do. And we believe that there are just three things that could be done that would really help move things along. 
So tell us about those three things. Um, I understand you laid them out in your letter. Uh, what are they and, and what kind of response did you get uh, from Dr. Burks? Well, the first thing is we are trying to develop, uh, suggest that the government develop a web portal so that there can be in one place, organized by the federal government, a look across the country to see where there are these supplies hangups. Number two, link the federal government with its broad transnational view is the right body, the right area to develop a better feel for the, the supply chain and actually to make differences in the supply chain, to help manage the supply chain. And then thirdly, we mentioned in the letter, more transparency so that labs can see where there are issues coming up in supply chains. And I think that uh, a big step forward yesterday was the Senate passing this bill that was uh, roughly $480 million, about $20 billion, about $25 billion of which would go for testing. And in that bill, in addition to the money, the language indicated the need for HHS develop a strategic plan roughly in the next month to move these things along. So we're continuing to be in contact with the task force. We believe things are going in the right direction, but we need more coordination from the federal level. We had uh, Kari Stephenson from Iceland's Decode on last week, and he really excoriated the U.S.'s uh, sort of inability to increase testing capacity. Um, and he said the strength of the United States' university system should allow us to be leading the world here on per capita testing. How much more capacity could your members add to the system um, if they were able to run at full throttle? Well, the system has to be a collaborative effort between uh, big labs that can do high throughput testing, as you've already talked about in earlier coverage that you did, and also the university labs who not only can do tests, but can develop tests. And so once again, it, it has to do with a broad national view from the federal government of where we have hangups in the supply chain. And when we know where those hangups are and if the federal government can help to manage the supply chain, I believe the combination of the commercial labs, high throughput efforts, as well as efforts in our laboratory, we can get to this one to five million a day. And we need to do that and I'm concerned as we are beginning to open up that we need to move this along faster and faster so we're not caught in a situation of not being able to have the evidence on which good decisions can be based about opening up and staying open. Well, Dr. Scorton, thanks so much for joining us. I think everybody agrees with you that we need to be moving faster and faster. We appreciate your time. Kelly, back over to you. Meg, thanks, thanks so much. I appreciate you all joining us. Coming up. Chipotle hires online sales, uh, sales soar, but foot traffic tanks as lockdowns continue across the country. So how's Chipotle preparing for potential reopenings? We'll ask the CEO with the shares of more than 12 percent. Brian Nickel joins us straight ahead. Also, take a look at shares of Delta, which are moving lower after reopening its after reporting its first loss in five years. CEO Ed Bastian speaking with CNBC today to explain why it will take a long time to get people back on planes. It's not just physically safe. It's also financially safe because we also have to consider the, the, what the impact in the markets have had and the economy has had on, on discretionary spend as well. But once that happens, and it may take two to three years to build it back, people will come back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's up 446 points. Let's head over to Dom Chu for a further check on the markets and on today's big movers. Dom. 
All right, so Kelly, stocks are looking to snap that two-day losing streak, and you're seeing roughly about 2% plus gains for the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ. Now, you can see here at the highs of the day, the Dow was up roughly 481 points, the S&P higher by just around 62, so we're near the highs of the session right now. Taking a look at the sector heat map behind me, it's all green. The gains are broad-based, every sector in positive territory, technology, energy, utilities leading the way. Meanwhile, you've got financials and industrials and consumer staples, the laggards so far. Now, some of the notable stocks on the move so far today, intraday, you've got shares of Snap up around 30% or so after the parent company of social media company Snapchat reported a surge in quarterly revenues driven by a ramp up in user growth. You've got moving in the opposite direction now, shares of L Brands, which are down around 23% after the private equity firm Sycamore Partners filed a lawsuit looking to back out of its deal to buy the company's embattled Victoria's Secret lingerie stores. And then shares of casino operator Las Vegas Sands off fractionally, but could be more active in the after-hours session after the closing bell. It reports earnings then and could give a glimpse, Kelly, into the gaming activity in the greater China region as that economy tries to get back to normal amid the big coronavirus pandemic, Kel. We'll, see, we'll send things back over. Yeah, and the snap rally uh, just keeps going, Dom, as you point out, up 30% now. Wow. Uh, that's uh, Dominic Chu. Crude oil, meanwhile, rebounding today after a historic 48 hours leading up to the expiration of the May contract, which traded deeply negative. Overall, we're down about 27% on the week. The industry facing down weak demand, oversupply, and global storage quickly filling up. For more on next steps from here, let's bring in Mike Summers. He's CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. Mike, welcome. This is a time that calls for creativity. What can be done here to support uh, oil and gas right now? Kelly, it's great to be with you. I'll tell you, it's a very concerning time for the industry. Uh, Of course, you see the supply issues, but the demand issues remain the most important issue here. Uh, There was a report today, in fact, from EIA that suggests that uh, oil demand is down about 31 million barrels uh, from the highs of 100 million barrels uh, before the crisis began. So, of course, this is a really difficult time for oil and gas. Uh, We're talking to the Department of Energy about some creative solutions, particularly on the storage side. Right. Uh, We're very concerned about a storage wall that we're going to hit in late April or early May. I mean, if they're turning, you know, the relief ship away from New York City, fill it it with crude oil. I mean, at some point, what happens for the industry is that the the tanker ships start to fill up because people want to store oil somewhere. Is that a potential solution here? Uh, to find further places to be able to put crude? Because that decline in demand you're talking about isn't for a year, it's for, for a day. Yeah, I, I, we are looking at creative solutions. So if you look at just the month of February, there were about 10 tankers that uh, had oil filled with them. Uh, now we're looking at about 60 tankers uh, filled with oil for storage purposes. So uh, we are looking at creative solutions. We applaud what the Department of Energy has done so far in opening up the SPR uh, for storage uh, leasing. Uh, We want to make sure that they continue to do that. And then we want to make sure that the terms are flexible enough on that storage so that producers actually participate in the program. And how much, we talked to the energy secretary yesterday who suggested maybe you could store up to a billion barrels of oil somehow. How much capacity is there currently and how much of a difference would that make? Yeah, so there's only about 77 million barrels available in that capacity right now. So we're looking at other options as well. You know, new commercial storage is coming online as well to meet the demand. Uh, But, you know, we would be concerned about any policy proposals that would uh, propose keeping oil in the ground and paying producers for not producing. Why do you have to pay people not to produce? I mean, 
you know, yesterday Jeff Curry said, look, it's expensive to cap a well and sometimes they're damaged in the process. But I mean, how expensive is it really? And, and is there something more significant that can be done to just say stop producing? Well, the real answer here is what the price is today. No one's making any money at current prices. So we believe that the market is providing the best signal for producers to not produce at this time. When you have American production going down from 13 million barrels a a day in the month of February and going down probably to 11 million barrels a day, uh, you know, through the end of this year, uh, we think the prices are giving uh, the appropriate market signals to producers. uh, And we don't think that it's appropriate for the government to get involved with this uh, industry right now. That include Texas? You don't support any action there to restrict production? Absolutely not. Uh, We think the prorationing proposals in Texas would do a lot more damage to this industry in the long term than anything that's going on now. So we are very concerned about a new quota system or, you know, what we would call Tex OPEC uh, in the state of Texas. Interesting. All right, Mike, thanks. It's good to get your point of view on this. Thanks so much. Mike Summers with the API. Speaking of oil, some positive news in the auto sector out just now. J.D. Power says that auto retail sales are showing signs of recovery during the first two weeks of April. They're saying all U.S. markets showed a stronger sales pace for the week ending April 19th. They're checking on the auto stocks. General Motors just fractionally lower, while Ford and Toyota are slightly higher on the session today. Still ahead, strong digital sales helping Chipotle beat on earnings, but profits were still down and the company suspended its guidance. CEO Brian Nickel joins us to talk about that and what kind of new normal he sees for his business and the industry as economies reopen. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back. Shares of Chipotle are up more than 12% today after earnings that topped estimates and a jump in digital sales that offset some of the damage done by this pandemic. Kate Rogers joins me with a closer look at the numbers. Kate? Hi there, Kelly. Well, Chipotle out with a solid first quarter. Same-store sales rose by 3.3%, even as social distancing requirements have hit the broader restaurant industry hard. Digital, as you mentioned, grew 81%, counting for more than a quarter of sales in Q1. Digital sales also more than doubled in March alone. That digital pipeline is even more important as COVID-19 has impacted in-store business, with about 100 restaurants temporarily closed due to the pandemic, mostly inside malls and shopping centers. Joining us now exclusively to talk more about the quarter is Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel. Brian, thanks for being here. Yeah, great to be here, Kate. Uh, Well, congrats on the quarter. That digital number was huge once again. We know it's something that you've really focused on during your tenure at Chipotle so far. I'm curious how much you think the pandemic will alter consumer behavior moving forward and if digital will just become the new normal and all of those customers that you've gained will really stay uh, and continue to interact with the brand that way. Yeah, so look, obviously, as you mentioned, we've invested quite a bit over the last couple of years to create the digital access point. And uh, obviously, consumer behavior, uh, because of the pandemic, accelerated the adoption of our digital channels. And I think that behavior is going to be one that people actually like the experience where, you know, they can order ahead, select a pickup time, uh, and really the convenience and um, the contactless nature of the occasion, I think is always going to be valued uh, for those occasions going forward. Uh, So, you know, we're optimistic that uh, new people are getting this new experience and it's going to be part of their occasions going forward. 
Obviously, I do think as we start to bring back the dining rooms, um, you get a little different level of customization when you're able to uh, come into our restaurants and order uh, down the down the uh, food line. But uh, I think people are going to be staying with uh, our digital access, as evidenced by just the tremendous amount of people that are signed up for our rewards program and so on and so forth. You just mentioned reopening up some of the dining rooms. How are you evaluating? If and when it's safe to start doing that, who will you be taking your cues from, from and how might Chipotle look different moving forward, you know, in this new environment that we're operating in? Yeah, obviously, uh, to reopen the dining rooms, uh, it's really going to be uh, a partnership with the local uh, government folks, uh, as well as the state and federal. And then obviously, you have to be informed by the data and the science that's coming out and working with folks like the CDC uh, as well. And we're fortunate we've got a, uh, a leader over food safety and wellness. She is very much connected with uh, all the data, the science and the right people at the CDC to keep us well informed. Um, so it's really going to be a partnership to your point on how these dining rooms reopen. You know, obviously, we're going to do everything we can to get people confidence um, that it's a healthy environment and it's an environment that if they decide they want to dine in, uh, they can have confidence in that experience. Um, so we'll be adopting new practices. Um, you know, probably a lot of things we'll put behind the counter. People will have to request them uh, so that when they do get them after reuse, we're able to sanitize them before uh, it gets reused. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to adopt accordingly. It's a time of great uncertainty for the restaurant industry at large. Executives, including yourself, obviously on the call yesterday, seemed pretty optimistic and upbeat about the future. What do you foresee as the biggest challenge for the brand moving forward and getting people back into the stores? Yeah, look, I think it's going to be consumer uh, psychology of uh, how they want to access restaurants going forward. And, you know, I'm, I believe once uh, we get beyond um, really the, the anxiety around the current situation, uh, consumers will go back to some behaviors, um, you know, as they get back to going to work, uh, you know, they'll be in their cars more, they'll be out and about, which I think will present opportunities for occasions that don't, don't exist today. But, you know, based on the consumer research we've done, um, I think consumers are going to be willing uh, to go back to restaurants to have that dine-in experience. The pace at which that comes back I think will really be dictated by, you know, what we see as far as the data and how each individual uh, community really uh, gets up to speed on the impact of the virus in their community. So that's why I think it's really critical that we continue to stay focused on giving people access through these digital channels like order ahead, delivery, and giving the confidence that all these occasions can be done in a healthy way and a very, um, you know, delicious way as well. It's definitely delicious, Brian. It's Kelly back here in the studio. I had my own. I, it's a godsend uh, in these days that you guys are open, although I was the crazy lady, crazy lady banging on the glass uh, at a New Jersey store lately trying to get the food. I, it, I won't go into the details. Um, but listen, my, my question is, how? <laughs> first of all, I enjoy being able to, to drive up my car and, and have the food brought you know, curbside. I'm curious if, if that's profitable enough to stick around for the long term. And I also wonder if your stores are at 50% or less capacity for a while, are you guys going to make money? What's that break-even level of capacity that, that you're targeting? Yeah, fortunately for us, um, you know, the bottom, it appears, was about a negative 35% um, in same-store sales. 
And uh, that's roughly right around where we break even uh, in our restaurants on cash flow. Oh, yeah, right. And, you know, the most recent trends that we've seen have improved from there. And, you know, the most recent couple of weeks in April, we uh, saw sales in the negative high teens. Uh, you know, I never thought I'd be really excited about negative high teens. But what that does for us is it now presents positive cash flow coming out of those restaurants, uh, which really gives us the liquidity and the confidence uh, to continue, you know, to invest in the business accordingly. And I think we've been really consistent with how we've chosen to invest to date. You know, the first priority has been investing in our people, our culture and our values. Uh, and then, you know, from there, obviously the digital and then the opportunity for us to continue to grow our business through new real estate opportunities. But so you, we're very fortunate uh, with our balance sheet and the liquidity situation we have. That's impressive. You can base your break even as minus 35% same store sales. And you're, I assume you're hoping we're above there by the second half. Yeah. You know, look, if the improvement continues, uh, obviously, um, you know, that will be a really positive thing for the business. Yeah. Uh, and the, the point I want to make is at that point, uh, five. We're breaking. Uh, yeah. Obviously, we are investing above and beyond that. So we are spending cash on capex and additional employee uh, compensation and GNA. Yeah. Uh, but the good news is the cash burn becomes less and less um, as our sales continue to recover from that negative 30, 35 uh, standpoint. Absolutely. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Kate, thank you as well. Our Kate Rogers with the CEO of Chipotle, Brian Nickel. Coming up ahead, 2019 was the year of the buyback, the second biggest year on record. But this year, companies are issuing stock instead of buying it amid the crisis. And that could have implications for future bull markets. We'll explore after this quick break. Companies are raising cash however they can these days. Netflix, the latest to announce it plans to raise capital on a billion-dollar debt sale. United Airlines, Darden Restaurants, and Carnival have all announced stock offerings to raise a combined $2 billion. What kind of hangover should we expect from all these cash grabs? For more, I'm joined by Brian Reynolds. He's the chief market strategist at Reynolds Strategy. And senior markets commentator Michael Santoli is here as well. Brian, I'll just start with you. You think we're going to see a whole lot more of this to come? Oh, definitely. Once the Fed opened up the corporate bond market at the end of March by stating their intention to buy corporate bonds, we saw a near record flow of money almost double. So there's a tremendous amount of money going into companies. I think that's a short-term positive and a longer-term negative. How much of a negative? Because we, you know, love them or hate them, stock buybacks were an important part of the last bull rally, and it sounds like we're not going to have them this time around. Almost every time I've been on with you the last seven, eight years, I've talked about debt money going for stock buybacks. In the next cycle, there's so much debt going on, I think we're going to have to focus on debt buybacks. And that's probably a negative for economic growth. I think it's going to be a slow economic recovery based on that. Mike, how would you evaluate the trading ranges for the S&P, the strength of this recovery, the letter shape it might take, given all this? Obviously, the, the market with the 28 percent rally, I think, in less than a month's time uh, to Friday's highs, did suggest that the market uh, felt as if the capital markets were refreshed by the Fed's actions and the openness uh, to new corporate bond issuance. It was not going to be a big kind of meltdown on the uh, on the, the corporate bond side. That has helped bolster the idea that uh, the companies that we already knew were well positioned before, which drive the S&P 500, have uh, have also have remained so. They've remained in favor of the big uh, growth companies. I don't know exactly how it's going to shake out, though, with this equity raise going on 
in many companies. Obviously, it's bolstering the aggregate balance sheet uh, and it's diluting some parts uh, of the market. I just am unsure exactly how much to extrapolate that into what behavior is going to look like in the coming years and whether, in fact, uh, companies are going to deleverage. Right. Brian, I think that's an interesting question, too. Can they just stay with permanently higher debt levels or how much urgency will companies have to repay debt instead of just leaving it hanging there is kind of an analogy for the whole country. If they stay with higher debt levels, their profitability will be less. And keep in mind that one of the new bondholders is the Fed. They're putting taxpayer money to work in corporate capital structures. So traditionally, when that's happened, like with AIG and GM, the Fed insists on getting taxpayer money back first before a company can buy stock. And that probably takes years into the next cycle before that happens for most companies. I just wonder if the Fed realizes that could hurt the recovery more than help. Maybe they wouldn't demand it back. I think they're taking it one step at a time. Yeah, and trying to learn, uh, you know, who, there's going to be obviously uh, a, a lot of pressure to get that taxpayer money back, but it seems like we're darned if we do and darned if we don't, uh, so to speak. Mike, final thought here. I, I, like, I guess, like Brian said, the takeaway is we can view these as a short-term positive and yeah. just wonder about the, the hangover. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I would sort of caution to go back in 2009. You also had a lot of equity raises. You also had the same kind of dynamic, no more stock buybacks. The market did okay because it could look ahead to a further uh, kind of growth cycle. But the sectors that raised all that equity were not really the leaders in that next bull market, meaning banks. Great point. And another reason to watch who's uh, up to what this time around. Thank you both. Mike Santoli, Brian Reynolds. Great discussion. Really appreciate it. Our breaking news coverage continues after this. Tyler Matheson will join us for Power Lunch. We're going to keep digging in on the PPP program and the billions that aren't going to small businesses, but rather to publicly traded companies and at least one billionaire. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.